Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the home of common sense and the world headquarters of sensible analysis, measured debate and sound political reason. Once more, into the breach, dear friends, is the message for this morning as we examine just what has been going on in the last 24 hours in the company of former Times correspondent in Moscow, Mary Dejevsky. We'll be asking whether everyone has misjudged Vladimir Putin, whether we are cheering on Ukraine to its own destruction and if Russia is as near to economic collapse as we are being told. 0344 Yesterday we heard from some of you who think both sides of the story are not being told. Now is your chance to tell the side that you don't think is being heard. However, uh, it's got to be better than ludicrous allegations about a globalist meltdown in a fake war started by people who want to destroy civilization. Those conspiracies are quite frankly mental uh, and they will not be entertained here on the home uh, of all things that are sensible. So if you want to be taken seriously, don't spout a load of old cobblers because you won't be able to prove it and all that will happen is you'll be humiliated uh, live on international broadcasting uh, radio. 0344 499 1000. We'll be crossing live with Rob Rinder on the Polish-Ukraine border for the latest on the refugee crisis as the number of UK citizens offering up their homes reaches towards 100,000. We'll also be keeping tabs on Boris Johnson as he travels to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in an effort to bolster our fuel supplies. And we're on the ground in western Ukraine where our man in the bunker is helping to train local residents to fight back and defend their streets against the Russian invasion. 0344 Tonya Buxton is here as well. She's got plenty to say about the net zero fiasco, how we got here and how we get out of it. Plus, she's got some ideas on how we can grow more of our own food, which sounds sensible as well. It's also Prime Minister's Questions today in the company of Nick Dubois. And in the absence of Boris, it's Dominic Raab against Angela Rayner. That should be good. Uh, a bit more entertaining than old Sakir Boring Fest. Uh, 0344-499-1000. you listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, now on television. It's Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there's been plenty going on over the course of the last 24 hours. Um, uh, the President Zelensky in Ukraine has said that they've got no intention of joining NATO. Uh, he basically says that uh, peace talks continue and the Russians seem to be uh, more keen now on talking about peace rather than talking about war. Joe Biden is expected to announce an additional $800 million in security assistance to Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, more sanctions on more Russian individuals and more than 100,000 people, as I say, have now come forward to say they would be more than happy to put a Ukrainian refugee up in their property. Let's talk to Mary Dejevsky, journalist, former Moscow correspondent for The Times, of course, now with The Independent. Wrote a very interesting piece in The Spectator about a week or so ago asking this question, are we cheering on Ukraine to destruction? Mary, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Fascinating piece, I thought, in The, uh, uh, in the Spectator, in which you sort of posed the question, is all this kind of rather flowery and sort of over-the-top appreciation of Ukraine actually going to harm them in the long term? 
Well, I was particularly struck by the um, the ecstatic receptions um, and justifiably um, ecstatic receptions for Volodymyr Zelensky when he's been addressing parliaments around the world. And yeah. I mean, he's due to address the US Congress, I think, today. Mm. Um, but it was especially after the session with the UK Parliament, because there was a the, the the commons was completely full, standing room only. Everybody was cheering, um, standing ovations, and they. I think Boris Johnson ended his his, his um, small tribute um, as he has done recently with Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine, um, and everybody whipped themselves up into this huge passion. Um, but the fact is that we weren't actually doing very much. Mm. Um, Ukraine had been left to fight alone. And NATO made a very clear distinction at the beginning, before any fighting broke out, that it was not going to get involved on Ukraine's side. It would support NATO members if they were attacked. But but Ukraine wasn't a member, therefore it didn't it, it didn't benefit from protection. So here we have all these parliaments all around the world saying, well done, heroic Ukrainians, well done, President Zelensky, mm. um, but basically leaving them alone to fight Russia. And uh, what are they supposed to do? Um, they so far, they've that, that they've put up a very convincing performance against Russia. But the fact is that Russia has, still has enormous firepower, depending how much disarray it's really in, as opposed to how much we're being told it's in. Um, and we're watching the destruction of Ukrainian cities. Mm. Indeed. And as if by magic, we've got this kind of um, everybody loves Ukraine feeling going on you know it's like people want to walk up to each other in the street and and have a little ukrainian badge on or wear something blue and yellow and i mean i generally f feel myself slightly repulsed by that kind of group mass behavior i just don't really like it um and i think it's a bit over the top to be honest isn't it because as we've often said on this show you know not everything about ukraine is good and not everything about russia is bad <laughs> No, well, I mean, I agree with that. But the, uh, I mean, the Ukrainians, you have to say, they've done a spectacular public relations job. I mean, starting from the top with President Zelensky, but also their use of the social media, their use of social protest, the images they've produced. You know, you have sunflowers um, as the sort of um, symbol mm. for Ukraine um, with tribute to its agriculture um, and it's you know it presents this wonderful sort of green peaceable image and of course on Russia's side you've got you, you've got missiles firing you've got double-headed eagle you've got um, this new Z symbol that they've that, that, that they've got which apparently signifies um, support for the war um, Russian PR has been completely catastrophic but I don't think that that means that we should be completely deaf to what the Russians are saying, or not to realise that the the presentation of the war that we have outside it has really been very one-sided. And, and that's quite dangerous because you get an, maybe an unrealistic impression of mm. how well the Ukrainians are doing versus how badly the Russians are doing. Yes, well, let's talk a little bit about that, Mary, because what's your understanding of the military situation? Clearly, uh, there's an awful lot of damage being done, as you say, to the cities in Ukraine. Um, you know, just structurally, the entire sort of infrastructure of the country is, is being targeted by, by Russian shelling um, and, by, and by various missile attacks. 
Meanwhile, though, the, uh, the, the, the spirit of the, of the Ukrainians certainly doesn't seem to be changing for the worse. And the Russians, we are told quite often, haven't reached really any of their main military targets. I think um, one of the most um, significant things maybe is that Russia has so far failed to capture completely a single city with the exception of Kherson in the south, which is sort of opposite Crimea. So in a way, the easiest territory for Russia to take. Um, But even there, it hasn't taken it over completely. There's a lot of resistance going on. Um, Largely, it seems um, peaceful resistance, sort of flag waving, climbing on tanks, um, which has been sort of I mean, you can't say tolerated by Russia, but Russia hasn't actually been firing in response to that. Um, so if if that's the closest that Russia has come to occupying any city, then yes, it's not doing very well. Mm. When you look at a map, though, you can see that at least in the south of the country and along the Black Sea coast, Russia has been making quite a lot of progress. And if one of its aims is to cut, cut Ukraine off from the sea, then it's maybe two thirds to three quarters of the way towards doing that. And that would be a huge bargaining counter at very least um, when it comes to you know, what have to be the talks to, 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 to settle that. I think it's also possible to look at the way that um, Russia is treating Kiev, um, the way that it, you know, it had this 40 kilometer tank column that Mm. was said to be stuck that then it turned out it wasn't actually stuck and it's now apparently maneuvering to encircle kiev but there seems a remarkable confidence and i mean i hope they're taking a very long time to do that though aren't they i mean because we've been told various different things about the column one that it was 25 miles long then it was 40 miles long then it was 40 kilometers long then it was breaking up then it was moving somewhere else then they'd given up now they're going to encircle the city this is now 22 days in, right? Yes, but you know, you you have to look at in a way at what else they've been doing and what the purpose um, of the the current move that appears to be encircling Kiev is. I mean, one thing that strikes me is the huge confidence that you sort of hope is is well placed inside Kiev that although there have been missiles missile strikes on the outskirts, including some residential blocks. Um, the centre of Kiev has so far remained pretty much untouched. Now, is that because uh, the talks going on in Belarus between the Ukrainians and the Russians, are the Russians, as it were, holding Kiev back and saying, look, we need to put putting pressure on Ukraine to say, if you want to save your capital city, then this is how you're going to have to do it. Mm. Um, you know, is it a deliberate holding back, or is it a um, is it logistically forced by Russia's weakness or poor planning? We don't know that. No. Just before we carry on, Mayor, a bit of breaking news. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and fellow detained British Iranian national Anusha Ashuri are reported to be heading to an airport in Tehran to return to the UK, uh, according to Reuters. So we'll keep you uh, informed about that. Uh, as and when That's we know. brilliant news. That isn't is it? very good news, isn't it? Um, let's talk a little bit about Vladimir Putin, uh, because you've also been posing the question, have we misjudged this man terribly badly over the course of time. Um, first of all, I suppose, from uh, back in the sort of Blair times when everyone thought he was a breath of fresh air, he was coming in post-Glasnost um, and he was going to be a different kind of Russian leader. Um, obviously, they got that wrong. Um, and, and they're getting it still wrong, are they not? 
Well, I think that there's, you know, there's all sorts of theories about why Putin launched this military adventure. Um, and it looks it looks completely ill-advised and uh, and miscalculated. Um, and I was among very, very many Russia watchers who said for exactly for those reasons that it seemed very improbable that Russia would do that. Um, when you look at what's happened since, then probably, you know, people divide up into two camps. There are the camps that say, well, Putin was always evil, demonic, wicked, um, and he was always going to do something like this. And then there are others of us who say, well, actually, Putin is an entirely rational individual. Um, and he weighed up certain odds and he decided to he, he decided on to invade Ukraine. And to my mind, he had a reason. Now, you know, it's it's not a reason that most of us would sign up to. But if you were Putin sitting in the Kremlin mm. and you were watching, um, as it seems to them, NATO members coming closer and closer to Russia's borders, if you regarded Ukraine as being armed and trained by NATO, even if it wasn't yet quite inside NATO, you might, if you were Vladimir Putin, make the make the judgment that you had to move now to stop that happening, to stop what he may have seen as a mortal danger to Russia's security. If you didn't move now, then it might be too late. Um, and I tend to think that Putin is a rational individual and that the reasons that he launched the invasion were to do with Russia's national security, not to do with anything else. Yes. But I mean, he could have done it in a variety of different ways. And the way that he chose to do it, I think, has not helped him or his cause uh, or indeed um, the cause uh, of, of his sort of future dealings with with NATO and, and with the West. I mean, we've got Zelensky quoted this morning on the front page of Daily Telegraph saying we will never join NATO, um, which is being seen as a major sort of concession by him to say, well, you know, let's try and sort this out. Let's try and get some kind of deal going. Yes. And I mean, there have been various comments on that this morning, um, which I think are entirely justified. I mean, why why couldn't Zelensky have said this um, a month ago? Why was the United States and NATO leadership so adamant um, that NATO, NATO prospect of NATO membership had to be open to Ukraine? I mean, now it appears a month later, destruction of um, parts of Ukrainian cities later, desperate damage to a lot of Ukraine's infrastructure. And a month on, we're exactly where Russia at least partly wanted to be with Ukraine saying no we're not going to join NATO sure. I mean it's been a but this huge is also but cost. this is yeah but this is, it hasn't been a huge cost but it's also been at the cost of quite a lot of the truth as well hasn't it because we've had Russians uh, and the Russian government particularly uh, in the form of their foreign minister talking about coming in uh, to stop uh, bio labs from creating terrible nasty pathogens that are going to kill half the planet we've also had the Russian uh, government previously saying they were coming in to rescue Ukraine from the Nazis that are taking it over you know so every week it's almost as though there's a different excuse for what they're doing well yeah, i mean i think that's not that's not quite fair um because well they did the, say both of those things they did but you have to look at the the um the, the timing of those things because demilitarization and denazification were the two objectives that putin gave at the outset denazification which always was 
slightly strange because it seemed to identify um, the Ukrainian government, which after all has a president who is Jewish um, and really no no far rightists um, anywhere in evidence in in the government. Um, That seemed a very strange thing to say. Um, That since seems to have been dropped. Um, now, when you look at the the, 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 the claims about, I think, biological weapons or w- whatever, I mean, you're starting to get these on these sort of disinformation that are going to come from all sides. You're in a war. This is a war about information as much as it is about anything else. Um, and my sort of um, my problem with some of this is less that it's being said than that we're not being told it's said, that the whole of what the Russians are saying, however absurd and however in some cases justified it is, it's being blocked out. Partly this is Russia's fault because it's been um, imposing censorship on its own media. But it's also because we're blocking it out. If you look on social media, um, posts from a Russian perspective are often either blocked or they're put with with, with question marks, um, but not from the other side. So, you know, you can have questions about statements and claims made by both sides, but the the, the Ukrainian version is getting through, um, whereas the, the Russian version, at least we need to know the Russian version, is not getting through. Yes, but it is difficult when you have Sergei Lavrov speaking uh, as he was earlier, I think last last week, I think it was at uh, at some summit meeting in which he said we're not we're not here to justify what we're doing in Ukraine. You know, he gave off the image of somebody who was not willing to be questioned about anything. He certainly didn't appear to want to answer any questions that he didn't want to answer. You know, so it's a bit more difficult, I suppose, to get from the Russians what it is that they're doing and what they want to say if they don't want to say it. Well, I mean that, 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 that's that, that's also true, and the uh, the Ukrainians, uh, you know, as we said, have been running rings around the Russians in um, in public relations terms and their use of the media to get their message out. Yeah. Um, and I think in some ways, you know, we're looking at um, something quite interesting, a sort of intergenerational thing here, um, because when you look at the Ukrainians, um, a lot of them are very fluent in English. Um, they they come across as quite cosmopolitan they're easy to talk to they Mm. talk in terms that we can understand you look at the russians they're maybe a generation or more older than the ukrainians they're obviously not au fait with social media and with 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 how to use this best you know as you say you've got lavrov um fronting some of the um some of the russian uh, pr that is not helping Mm. at the moment um but then again you you have um you have pro- a protest movement in Russia, and you had that um, just extraordinary to me um, event where, where where an editor at the main state Russian television channel appeared on camera during the main evening news bulletin with her protest with her protest placard mm. saying no to the war. You are being lied to. Um, and then when obviously she was she was arrested and detained, um, it turned out she'd made a video which was then put out on social media justifying her position. You've got those sort of things going on in Russia, which suggests that there is that there is a new generation coming coming along 
and we just have to wait and see mm. you know what's going to happen in the fullness of time there. sure and that's my final question to you mary i mean how close is the economy to uh proper damage and proper sort of you know uh, real real unstable uh, collapse um because of the sanctions or will they stagger on uh, sort of producing everything from within <laughs> Well, I think they're in some ways they're in a better position to stagger on than they were, say, before 2014, because um, some of the sanctions that were imposed then that affected um, imported agricultural stuff um, actually prompted um, a lot of investment in neglected Russian sectors. So um, in terms of food supplies and things like that, um, they're actually in a, in a stronger position. I think interestingly, the sanctions that have, have had most effect on Russia have been the the banking sanctions, specifically those targeted at the central bank. I think that's something that Russia didn't expect. And it complained that it was um, they were using um, the, 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 these sanctions as a weapon of war. The sanctions that I don't think are going to work, which are um, really, it seems to me, more for effect than anything else, um, are the very belated sanctions in the UK against um, against oligarchs, against rich, rich Russians and their property um, and their connections in, in London. Because if the idea there is that by making life difficult for these individuals, they'll go to Putin and say, you've got to change your policies because, because we're being penalised. Mm. That is not an argument that is going to sway Putin. Um, it, it just seems to me that that, that, that that whole philosophy that you get at the oligarchs and through them you get at Putin, that is not going to work. No, but all the other sanctions as well. I mean, all the other companies pulling out of Moscow, all the other sort of Western organisations refusing to do business with Russia, that's not going to have an yes, impact either? And and that's in in a way that's less to do with with, with actual sanctions than it is to do with um public pressure hmm. um that you know i remember specifically with, with with mcdonald's and starbucks they were saying that you know investors were, were were pulling out and that it was it was damaging their reputation you're having a massive consumer effect on investment in russia um, which, in one way, is is quite impressive because that's you know that's not a political that that's not primarily government political action. That's public consumer pressure, um, and maybe in a way that's that, that that's the way of the future. But it's also tragic from another, another perspective because over the last thirty years, you know, I've watched how Russia, in a way, has has become a normal country that it's joined the rest of the world in terms of consumerism and what people have access to. And suddenly, those thirty years have basically been reversed in a couple of weeks, and it's not at all clear how how soon or whether that progress will actually be recouped mm. ever. Yeah, that's going to be the interesting question. Mary, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Mary Jajewski there, journalist, former Moscow correspondent for The Times, of course, as well, giving us her take on whether Russia can carry on as it is for much longer and whether Ukraine is actually going to end up in a worse place as a result of all of this sort of pro-Ukrainian stuff that's going on around the world. We shall see. Lots more to do. Many of you to talk to. Do keep your calls coming in. 0344-499-1000. This is Talk Radio. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on the Talk Radio. Also available now, of course, on television as well. On Apple TV, Rakuten, Samsung TV Plus, Roku. Uh, we're also on YouTube and now on Amazon Fire as well. All you've got to do is go to the page uh, talkradio.tv on Google. Or, of course, what you can do is just go to the App Store and download the Talk Radio TV app. And you will see us uh, in all our glory. Ian Collins back from one today. Jeremy Carl from four. Kevin O'Sullivan from seven. And, of course, James Whale from ten. We filmed Plank of the Week, by the way yesterday with James Well and Emma Webb the 100th edition believe it or not absolutely extraordinary stuff very good as well it was it'll be out later on uh, today right now let's go to Mary who's in Hemel Hepstein hello Mary uh, good morning Mike good morning uh, um, look um, with regards to the Ukrainian refugees yes majority or a lot of people who are offering them rooms are people living on their own I myself am living on my own yes now what happens about the council tax because you get a reduction if you're living on your yes, own. Yes, you get 25% off, don't you? Yes, so then what happens if you then take in some refugees? You're increasing the number in your house. Yeah. Well, do you know, I raised this question, this very question at the start of the week, because, you know, knowing what we know, they send you a note, don't they, about once every year to say, is it still the case that you are still living alone, just in case yes. you've moved somebody in? And if you have moved somebody in, then that all disappears. So I would imagine the council not being particularly, uh, shall we say, forward-thinking, would, would be very happy to take more money off you. Well, well that's what I wonder, because, I, I mean, that's a considerable amount, and it, I, I thought maybe a lot of people don't know this. No. Well, there's also there's all sorts of other things as well. There's insurance issues because some insurance uh, companies will say if you've now got a tenant in a, in a home that you say own, then that oh, yes. makes life very different. And there might be tax implications because you're taking money uh, which you previously weren't getting. So I don't know whether the three hundred fifty pounds a month is taxable income or not. So how can anybody find out? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, you would like to think there would be a government website somewhere, but I'm sure uh, that would be quite difficult to find. I mean, I keep asking the same questions to people. Nobody seems to know the answer. Maybe if I contact my MP. Well, maybe. Are you are you looking to, to take a refugee in? Uh, well, I was sort of half thinking of it. I've got one small room. I thought somebody, you know, one person, but uh, it makes me hesitate now because this thought suddenly occurred to yes me. no i think a lot of people haven't thought about the actual implications of what they might be offering to do while it sounds like a very nice thing and it sounds like a very noble thing to do um you know there are complications i'm afraid Right, well, thank you very much. Not at all, Mary. I'll try and find an answer for you if we can get a proper kind of uh, sense of what the rules and regulations will be. There's no question in my mind that an awful lot of the 100,000-plus people who have offered their place uh, for for some kind of shelter for uh, Ukrainian refugees will never see them because it simply won't happen. Because one of the the rules and regulations, supposedly, is that you have to give an actual named person as a name to the uh, authorities, to the Home Office, in order to get that person to come and stay with you. We're going to come to uh, 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 more of your calls in a moment. Keep them coming, 0344-499-1000. Right now, though, let's go over to Ukraine, Western Ukraine to be precise. Pavel Kuzak is there for us. We've been speaking to him throughout the course of the last couple of weeks. Let's find out what he's up to at the moment. Pavel, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Graham. Thanks very much. Um, so that's okay. Don't worry. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, you're in Western Ukraine. You're you're helping with some uh, training for some local people. What's the what's the what's the scene where you are? And, and tell us a little bit about what uh, it looks like. So yes, uh, I'm in Western Ukraine, and we are training local volunteers, uh, people who have no previous uh, military experience 
or little military experience, we're giving them the basic military training and basic medical training so they can either join the territorial um, defense units or uh, they'll be conscripted into the Ukrainian armed forces uh, and have some prior knowledge uh, as they go in. Uh, I'm also coordinating all the time the help that is coming uh, through from the whole world into Poland and then we having them it, uh, having it shipped here to Ukraine and then distributed uh, uh, mainly amongst uh, territorial defense and the volunteer units. So there's quite a few people coming into the country from other countries to help with with that kind of thing as well, right? Yes, yes, there are quite a few. I personally know one British uh, and uh, two American guys, and we're speaking to some other guys who are willing to come over EMTs from uh, the emergency emergency medical technicians from uh, the US, uh, women as well, uh, who are uh, EMT trained. Okay, and what's the kind of um, hostile situation as far as it goes on the streets? Is is are there are there Russian soldiers nearby? Are they how far away are they? No, so there are no um, no uh, Russian soldiers in uh, any immediate vicinity uh, of this place. Uh, however, there was a an, uh, rocket strike on the uh, training uh, camp in Yavorov, which is uh, twenty kilometers away from the Polish border. Yeah. Um, and uh, that strike could have been, well was recorded by Polish people uh, from across the Polish border. Uh, quite a few people. Uh, there were reports about 35 people got killed and uh, uh, 150 wounded. And uh, as a uh, military target, that place was quite insignificant. But apparently, it was uh, to send a message uh, to the foreign volunteers not to come uh, into Ukraine because they put their lives at risk, but uh, anyone who comes to Ukraine, uh, we know that uh, we put our lives at risk, but there are more important things, uh, such as defending local people and uh, defending women and children who are getting shot daily by Russian soldiers just for sport. Yes, indeed. Um, and as far as the Russian kind of advance is concerned, we've, we've been hearing from one of our co- uh, uh, sort of, um, uh, commentators today that the uh, the... The tank column that was coming towards Kiev is now attempting to encircle Kiev. What have you heard about that? No, so, uh, from the from my information, that uh, encirclement did not happen. Uh, Russians don't have enough forces to encircle uh, Kiev yet alone uh, to uh, launch a successful attack on Kiev. Kiev is, is a city of three million people, and practically everyone there is armed. Uh, so uh, for now, and it's been nearly three weeks of war, Russians have not uh, made it, uh, have not made a full encirclement of Kiev. And the proof for that is uh, simply a visit of uh, uh, yesterday. There was a visit of Polish, Czech, and Slovenian prime ministers who went by land to, to Kiev, and uh, they met with uh, President Zelensky and the prime minister of Ukraine uh, personally in Kiev. So Kiev is not surrounded. There are, uh, some of my friends are coming in and out of it, delivering uh, supplies yeah. uh, into the city. Yes, I was going to ask you how the supplies are going, because obviously there are worries that it might be difficult to get um, you know, supplies of food and medicine into various different parts of, uh, of Ukraine. But it sounds like Kiev's OK. 
Kiev is, is okay. Obviously, there are some neighborhoods where it's more difficult to deliver the, the, the supplies because they are under constant bombardment. The uh, catastrophic situation is in a city called Mariupol, mm. which is in southeastern Ukraine by the uh, Black Sea coast, because Mariupol is surrounded. It's a city of 460,000 people. That city is surrounded, and uh, uh, it's a humanitarian catastrophe. There were apparently two successful... Uh, attempts of evacuation, about 20,000 people managed to get out of Mariupol. Uh-huh. They have no electricity, no water supply, uh, no gas, uh, and supplies are not, not getting through to Mariupol. Right. But Mariupol is being expanded and it will not surrender. No, of course. It's obviously very different in lots of different parts of the country. Pavel, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Pavel Kurzak there, uh, talking to us from Western Ukraine, where things at the moment are relatively calm. Certainly Kiev does not appear to have been uh, occupied by the Russian soldiers. They haven't yet, if they are going to encircle it, yet encircled it. So uh, we'll keep you updated with all of that, of course, as it happens. Julie has tweeted, she says, Ray, you'll call her Mary. Um, Michael Gove said in his statement that your council's tax status will not be affected taking in a refugee. Um, Steve also says the council tax discount will remain. Well, they say that, of course, but I mean, you know, as ever, you might say that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. It wouldn't be at all surprising uh, to me if that changed, because all you've got to do then, presumably, if somebody else is living with you, is you say, oh, well, yeah, I've taken in a Ukrainian refugee, and then you keep the 25% discount. Strange things happen. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily believe a word that Michael Gove says about this kind of thing. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take loads more of your calls. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Accept no substitutes. Access all arguments. The UK's official opinion exchange. Free speech radio. Shut up and listen. We're on your side. The home of common sense. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Of course, the big story that was breaking as we were about to come uh, on the air this morning was the fact that uh, the Iranian government seems to have decided uh, to release Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. Uh, There is some suggestion that the British government has paid out something like £380 million in order to secure uh, her release, along with another uh, detainee. Let's talk now uh, to Paul Stott, who is, of course, writer and researcher, expert in terrorism, security, diplomacy. He's at the policy... Uh, exchange. Paul, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much for talking to us. I wanted to get a bit of a steer from you as somebody who knows a thing or two about this situation as to what sort of happened. I mean, clearly the money presumably had some kind of effect on uh, the decision that the Iranian government took, but it wasn't just about giving them money. So what else has been going on? Well, there's there's a very big geopolitical backdrop to this that's that's very complicated. Um, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was arrested and convicted of spying back in 2016. I think those charges were seen pretty universally as Mm. being trumped up. And over the years, eight or nine other British Iranians or uh, uh, Britons of Iranian heritage have been arrested in similar ways. And I I believe one of them uh, is actually coming back uh, with uh, Mrs. Uh, Zaghari Ratcliffe today. But uh, there'd always been this issue of this disputed debt between Britain and Iran. The Iranians paid us a a lot of money for tanks in the late 1970s, which weren't uh, delivered because of the uh, Iranian revolution. Uh, Britain wasn't, for obvious reasons, in the business of giving military equipment to the Ayatollah Khomeini. And uh, the Iranians have long wanted their money back um, and really use this as a sort of lightning rod um, in these negotiations. 
No, that's right. I mean, so do we see in this geopolitical kind of landscape that we're now um, observing Iran um, kind of behaving better as a result of getting this money? Because if they say the reason that we were holding her was because we wanted this money back effectively, um, presumably then they'll have to they'll have to behave differently now. Well, time will tell um, on that. It's worth noting that similar cases had occurred uh, with Westerners arrested uh, from countries who didn't owe uh, Iran money. But uh, just to go back on this sort of geopolitical setting, it's worth stressing that we're currently in some, uh, the West is currently in some very difficult negotiations with Iran over the, the nuclear deal, um, the deal which Trump pulled the Americans out of. If you recall that Biden wants to take America back into, he wants a new nuclear deal with Iran, where Iran, if you like, is, is brought back into uh, the global community, but uh, presumably agrees not to move towards having uh, a nuclear weapon. The difficulty, of course, in bringing Iran closer to the fold is Iran has great regional enemies, most notably Saudi Arabia. And if uh, the West cozies up to Iran, it makes the Saudis uh, and indeed other countries in the region very nervous. Yes, absolutely right. Um, And as far as uh, Boris Johnson, while we're on the subject of uh, the Middle East, is off to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, um, what do you think he's going to be hoping to achieve, if anything, from them? Because obviously the Iranians and the Saudis don't all see eye to eye, do they? No. So uh, the timing of this for for Boris Johnson is is possibly quite awkward. And it may well be a deliberate ploy on the the Iranians' part that uh, having reached some negotiation, it could be the the case of Mrs. Ratcliffe is is tied up in that uh, nuclear deal. Mm. Um, The the Iranians have have played a bit of sport, if you like, by uh, releasing her at the same time as Boris Johnson is heading cap in hand to Riyadh, hoping to get the Saudis to to pump out more oil. So it it might not necessarily, Boris Johnson will obviously be delighted in terms of the human story here. In political terms, uh, the the release may well be designed to embarrass him. No, quite. It could well be. It'd be interesting to see. Dr Paul Stott, thank you very much indeed. Head of Security and Extremism at Policy Exchange there uh, with an explanation of why the Iranians have uh, basically changed their minds on this. Uh, Okay, thanks for having me. All the best. Much of that is, of course, uh, down to the fact that uh, Britain apparently has handed over 380 million quid to the Iranian government, claiming uh, that that's repayment uh, of... uh, sort of military debt that's been owed for some years. Let's talk to Mark, who's in Swansea. Hi, Mark. Hello, Mark. Mark doesn't seem to be there. Uh, Here's one from Tony in Barrow in Furness. He says, Mike, I worked on a shutdown in Hull uh, where wheat is converted into biofuel to reduce the octane in petrol. 38-tonne tipper trucks with two abreast lined up all day long to empty the wheat into silos. Well, that doesn't sound like it's very um, green and terribly effective either, really. I think we've got Mark in Swansea down back. Mark? Yeah, hi, Mike. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Thanks. What what have you got for us? Um, Well, two things, really. Um, First one about the Ukrainian refugees. Um, A much better idea than all this um, noble as it is people wanting to house them. Um, Why don't the government take over, I don't know, Butlins, Pontins, whichever one, a, 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 a big holiday park, and uh, actually put them all together in a community uh, on their own. They can have their own schools, they can grieve together, they can talk together, they can have all the services centralised. That wouldn't put any pressure from the local schools or 
rather than stuck on their own in somebody's home that might not speak the language. Yes. No, um, I, I think there's like there's a lot of merit in there's a lot of merit in that suggestion because I think the problem for a lot of these families coming over will be there won't be just one person. You know, there could be a mother and three kids or there could be a mother and two kids, you know. They might not be able to be housed in one place. They might have to sort of split families up. I think it's a much more sensible idea to keep them in um, a sort of community, if you like. Yeah, they can say they'll be grieving. You know, they'll, they'll be still losing husbands, brothers, sons out there in others going on. And, um, uh, you know, they can uh, keep their community and then they want to go back. They, you know, they've kept it. They can have their schools in um, mm. You know, their own language, their own schools. There must be teachers in uh, in the flock of them, you know. So uh, well, you would think so, yeah. And it would seem a lot more kind of compl- it was a lot a lot less complicated as well, Mark. Let's talk to Tony who's in Bristol. Hi, Tony. Hello, Tony. Resume out. Hello, can you hear me? I can. Yeah, um, to resume our conversation from yesterday, where I wanted to talk about the second part of Putin's peace deal, which is recognising Crimea. I mean, the idea that Kiev can still have a claim on Crimea, surely that's ludicrous. Is it? Well, I think so. Why? The Crimeans Crimeans voted 95%. They wanted to stay with Russia, and they're now effectively part of the Russian Federation. So why is Kiev still saying, no, 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 we still want Crimea? Well, because because it's part of Ukraine. Yes, but the people don't want to be part of Ukraine. They have Russian speakers and Ukrainians. But a lot of Ukrainians uh, are Russian uh, speakers, Tony, as you probably know. Many Russian speakers well, live in Ukraine, in all parts of Ukraine. Zelensky's banned the Russian language. No, he hasn't. There's plenty yes, of people who speak. There's plenty of people who speak Russian and who are Ukrainian, and they admit to to, to speaking Russian. I mean, things like uh, any kind of public discourse, etc. He's also closed down all the pro-Russian TV back in whenever it was. It was a, it was a Poroshenko, wasn't it? Previously closed down the Russian TV. Well, so have we. Anyway, look, the, po- the point is... Well, so have really, we. The Russians so is the European doing, Union. The Russians are now doing in Ukraine what they were doing in Syria, which is a very slow mopping-up operation. It's not well, a It's called killing people, war. Tony. It's not a mopping-up operation. It's called killing people. They're killing people. Are they killing people or not? Well, of course they are. Both sides are. Well, don't call it a mopping-up operation. It's called murder. Well, it's exactly what was going on in Syria. Well, that doesn't make it any better. Have you seen the state of Syria? Look, I... Yes, but... Well, I don't understand what you're defending here, Tony. Well, look, there's a... a You seem to be defending murder. That's what it sounds like. There's, there's a great deal of difference between uh, an all-out war between two countries and the sort of thing... Not if you're getting killed, there isn't. Well, no, of course not. But they're So why are you defending it? Well, why well, you, I don't I, understand. Well, I'm defending, I'm defending what the Russians are doing because... You're, so you're defending the Russians killing people effectively, yeah? Is that what you're saying? And you're, no. Well, you just not. said it. Well, yeah, but yes, but they are they they feel anyway whether you whether they're right or wrong that that uh, they're under threat. What happened in December? I don't care how they feel. They're killing innocent people, Tony. You can't defend well, that in any situation. Well, well, I don't. No, I don't think. It, well, you can actually. Oh, you in, can defend uh, innocent people. Thanks very much indeed. Cheerio again, Tony thinks it's a great idea to defend the Russians killing people. I don't understand why anyone would ever say that. Never mind think it or say it on a radio station. I find that quite extraordinary. Absolutely unbelievable. We've got Prime Minister's questions coming up uh, next on Talk Radio.
Sainsbury's, we've dropped the prices of hundreds of products. Like buy Sainsbury's British King Edward potatoes. We're £1.75, now £1.50 for two kilograms. And taste the difference, Wiltshire unsmoked bacon. Was £2.75, now £2.40 for 240 grams. Sainsbury's. Subject to availability, excludes locals, number of products varies by store. Edgy Talk. Lane Talk. Unrivaled Talk. Talk Radio. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the home of common sense and, of course, the world headquarters of sensible analysis, of measured debate and of sound political reason. Uh, once more into the breach is where we're going this morning. Tonya Buxton is here in this hour. We'll be talking about net zero uh, and the complete and utter idiocy of that particular policy. Boris Johnson is still clinging on to it. But, of course, he's off to Saudi Arabia today uh, where they're not exactly the greenest, are they, uh, over there? Uh, they drill for oil. They're the world's biggest producer of oil. He's also going to the United Arab Emirates and in the Gulf. Some people are saying, a bit hypocritical of him, to go and see uh, the dreaded rulers of Saudi Arabia who have only just the other day executed 81 people all in the name of Allah. Uh, which doesn't exactly sound terribly civilised, does it? Meanwhile, war rages on in Ukraine. We'll keep talking about that, of course. And the refugee problem as well. Do you really want to know what is going to happen if you have somebody staying in your home? And do you really want to get into the complexities of all of that? And have you even thought about them? Over 100,000 people saying they're very happy to welcome Ukrainian refugees into their homes. Well, why don't you welcome the homeless into your home? Why don't you welcome some of the uh, poorest people who can't afford to live where you live into your home? What is it about Ukraine? What is it about all of this virtue signaling that's going on uh, and all the blue and yellow and all the flags and all the, um, you know, the shouting and the singing? What's it all about? 0344 499 1000. Simple questions don't always have simple answers. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Tonya, very good morning. Good morning. How nice to see you. You've brightened up my day because it's looking a bit gloomy out there. Oh, well, you know what? It's, it's going to be gloomy today. Is it? But wow, have we got some great weather coming. Have we? Look at me. I'm a weather person now. Excellent. Yes. Tomorrow is going to be glorious mm. as it's Friday and the whole weekend. Oh, great. We've got great weather in we London. Do I don't know anywhere else, but London I'm is going forward, to be I'm fabulous. looking forward to barbecuing something because we've decided, you know, we can't afford to cook anything anymore because, no. you know, electricity's too expensive. Yeah, so true. let's book a, <laughs> get outside, get it on the barbecue. So that's what I think we're going to be doing. That'll be lovely. This weekend's perfect for Excellent. it. Do it. Good stuff. Now, let's talk about the ridiculous cost of everything at the moment because, of course, the fact that energy is so expensive is putting the prices up of practically everything yeah because anyone that drives anywhere or gets anything delivered or you know uses fuel for any kind of thing at all it's costing us a fortune and it's partly due to the net zero madness isn't it there are so many things that are due to madness that mm. we have to look at and we're going to be doing a lot of that today we're going to look at our food food uh, security we're going to look at um heating and energy security these yeah. are things that we have should have been addressed a long time ago mm. and it's not that dissimilar from the way we reacted to covid no. there is no foresight everything seems to be jumping onto some populist view yes and then not thinking through what happens when we haven't thought through what happens when it there is no sun right like today what happens when there is no wind mm. so the renewables are great let's get them into practice but we must have sustainables we must have them so what, are we still concreting up the fracking mm. are we doing well, that now is that still happening they say they're putting it on hold right and quadrilla have said that it's at the moment under consider reconsideration so at the moment they're not doing it but doesn't mean they won't do it 
you know? Well, my personal view is that rather than go from one inhumane dictator despot to the other mm. inhumane dictator despot that does things that are so vile and disgusting to people, mm. I think that we have to relook at where we get of our course. energy from. Absolutely I right. don't understand you jumping from one to the other. They're bad as each other. I mean, some of the things that have been happening in Saudi, and we don't get to hear it here, no. are so horrific. Do you know they have an execution square, right? And I don't want to get too graphic about it, but they've got a big drain in the middle of it, which is just oh, basically where they chuck just... everything. And they have, um, it's got sort of seated um, stands around it because people go and watch it. It's barbaric. It's awful. It's... 81 people they killed. I'm, I'm so sorry. But what's happened to the ev evolution of humanity? Mm. It hasn't happened there. So I'm not sure whether going and getting, but we have to, let's be honest now. Let's, you know, not be like all the kind of really lefties who are saying, mm. no, no, you can't do that. We I mean, have we have to, to do business with Saudi Arabia. We have to do it. Now, yeah. At this moment, because we're not ready, because we're not organised, because we don't have any fracking or nuclear, or we, we don't take the oil out of our own seas, mm. uh, we have to do something. But I want someone to explain to me, how is it greener not getting it ourselves and importing it from somewhere else? Right. How does that make it greener on a global it platform? But what it does is it allows us to say, oh, but we don't do that, so that makes us good. But it's, we buy it from people who are bad. Yeah. It makes so, no sense. It, it, in other you words. know what it is, is, and I say it again and again and again, it's the hypocrisy of these people that fries my brain. It's their hypocrisy. The fact that they can look themselves in the mirror and shave and put their makeup on and be such unbelievable hypocrites it makes me so angry and that's what's lacking. You know, we have mm. to be we have to be self-aware and we have to be we as people have to be responsible for what we do. So saying, oh, we don't do it, but we buy it from there. Mm. How can that be any better? No, it's really not. It's like the people that say it's really good and virtuous to buy an electric car. Mm. But actually, I don't care about the fact that they send young boys down into a mine where they're likely to be poisoned and probably die before they reach the age of 12 while they get all the minerals that I need for the battery. That's OK. Yeah. Because I'm driving an electric car. It makes me look good. Exactly that. That's you've, the problem. You've just summarised that completely. Mm. So, you know, when you see these people, that they're constantly on Twitter, virtue signalling and saying all of this, yeah. they don't look at themselves in the mirror. And these people are really dangerous. Do you know why? They have no conscience no. and they have no self-awareness. They mm. just blurt out this stuff that causes all this damage. And it's because of them that we're in this situation now. I mean, I think we would all know now that it's because of Putin and his lobbying and paying for the lobbyists mm. for net zero yeah. that we're in this situation. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that's well, not that's what I've been reading, yeah. actually, that it's a lot of his money has mm. been coming into all these kind of... So all these people yeah. that think they're doing great, they actually, they're, they're, they're being paid off by Putin. Well, isn't it funny that uh, the money that he's using to do that has been given to him by Western Europe for his gas? <laughs> and you're going, <laughs> you can make it right, so, yeah. so you've actually now been funding yeah. uh, the guy who's invaded Ukraine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, and Germany still is, as far as I know, because they, they can't afford to cut the gas off because they haven't got anywhere else to go. The idea that somehow back in sort of 20 odd years ago, our government thought it was a great idea to sort of basically rent out all of our energy suppliers and get it all from somewhere abroad. And almost every single even domestic company that was that was bringing energy into your home is now foreign owned. It's, it's Scottish powers owned by the Spanish, I think, or the French or somebody. Who decided and who uh, allowed this to happen that we are in a globalist society. I don't want it. I want to be indigenous. Mm. I want it to come from where I'm from. I yeah. want Britain to be responsible, to be autonomous and not have to go and get anything from anyone else. Who decided mm. that it's okay to do that? Well, and you know, I think part of it 
was this kind of um, constant need for exotic things, you know, things that come from other countries, you know, like we must eat avocados, even though we don't necessarily grow them here. So all of these, you know, virtue signaling people who have avocado on toast because they think it's a good thing, don't care that it's been flown in at great cost to the environment, which they normally would be against, right? Because they like it on their toast. I completely agree with that. And should we, should we move on to our food security? Yeah. So one of the things that I found really fascinating, there was an article in the paper about how we just don't have food security. Now, in 1939, before the Second World War, mm. 70% of the British food was flown in. Was it? Yeah. And so that's why they had to, to get all the land girls in and yeah. start kind of using every single bit of land. Even Buckingham Palace was growing onions. Mm. And that's what they were doing so they could they could be independent right. because, you know, we, we weren't getting food. Mm. So did we not learn that lesson after the Second World War, yeah. during the Second World War? Why did we not learn that lesson? Why, is we, why are we now doing exactly the same thing? And as a nutritionist, mm. the best way that you can eat is indigenous and seasonal. Yeah. So, you know... People need to get it out of their heads that they can have, like you said, you know, foods and uh, that are out of season. Yeah. You know, you don't get apples in May. You get them in September, October. You right. know, you we, we don't get strawberries all year round. It shouldn't be like that. Mm. And actually, it would be better for our systems if we learned to cook and produce seasonally yes. and come go back to producing what we produce. And the fact that farmers are now being told that they can't put plant crops mm. or, or have grass and they've got to keep putting trees i mean the fact that we are growing oh, grain the rewilding thing isn't it the rewilding thing the fact that we are growing grain to feed cows mm. instead of allowing them to be grass-fed mm. is insane yeah. because you have a better healthier cow with better healthier meat if it's it's if it's eating grass if it's just grazing yeah. so just let it graze mm. you don't but also now apparently because of all the wheat that's that's produced in in ukraine there's going to be some kind of shortage of wheat. So everything that now has wheat in it, because we, we've concentrated everything into, into that part of yeah. Europe, um, you know, we're so reliant on it that we can't do without it. But, you know, we have... Um, um, we do have and eat and consume too much. Uh, you can cook relatively cheaply mm. if you if you do it from scratch. Yes. And that's one of the things that, you know, is a really big bugbear of mine. Sure. It was over COVID the whole time as well. Kids you need know, to be taught how to do it. Kids need to... Adults need to be taught yes. how to do it. My, most people don't know how to cook from no. scratch. They just go and buy a ready meal. They buy ready marinated mm. or they buy ready everything, which is expensive. It really And is. also, it's not good for your health. Right. It's got all sorts of additives in it. Loads of additives and sugars and mm. extra salts and, and, and bad salts not good salts, you know, there's lots going on there but if you cook it from scratch yeah. it's, it's, it'd be very difficult to put too much salt or too yes. much sugar into it because it won't taste as you much. You wouldn't put sugar into anything, would you? you why, why would you add sugar to some soup? Or, exactly. You know, to some cauliflower cheese or to something that exactly. you were You wouldn't do that. It's, it's, it's done to make it addictive and to preserve it. So my thing would be is that we need to go back to helping farmers have little farms that can produce good products that we buy it might be a little bit more expensive but if you cook from scratch you'd mm. be able to kind of offlay that also if you taught kids in school i'm sure that they would then pass it on to their parents because if you don't pick it up from your parents yeah and my parents weren't great cooks at all i sort of i think i've told you the story yeah. I, pick, I picked up cooking because i worked in a bakery and so yeah. everybody every man that was there quite a lot of them were chefs or pastry chefs so they they were familiar with cooking yeah and i learned from there and i loved it and and so you know now my kids cook um 
But I think if children were taught to cook properly at school, it would be great. It would be really good because there are a lot of families that now don't cook at home. I was very lucky, you know, my, my mother's um, Greek Cypriot and, you know, that, you know, her mother taught her, she taught me. I went, when we used to go back to Cyprus, my grandmother would be constantly teaching us how to cook. I'm teaching my daughters how to cook. Actually, my daughters teach me a lot of things. So right. they, they do new recipes that I might not necessarily do. So mm. there is a real cooking tradition in my home. But my daughters have got lots of friends. I mean, one of her friends, his mum literally, goes and fills up two chest freezers you know those big yeah, freezers yeah. with frozen food right. she doesn't cook at all she just says not so to sell like that so everyone just goes and, and lasagna oh, no, but, look, but anything you can get anything like a curry or whatever but it's it's all kind of frozen food that then reheat and eat They ne she never cooks right. um, and it's something that she doesn't think she likes to do so but her son who comes and eats at my house loves cooking he's yeah. always learning how to cook mm. for me I've been doing um, teaching people how to roll uh, doll mothers at my house because really? the young are really interested yeah. to learn so if schools took that on mm. that would be amazing if they taught just basic things whether yeah. it's just like a shepherd's pie or a bolognese yeah. or, or how to make or a nice salad or, or an omelette just basic things yeah. then the like you said the kids could then teach the parents who maybe skipped it I think some of our generation or the ones just underneath me they kind of skipped cooking mm. and the young ones are coming back into it but they need the tools to be able to do right. it well especially now when everybody's under so much pressure financially yeah because everybody's going my goodness, I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford to do this, you know, this week or, you know, maybe we won't have the roast lamb because it's too expensive. You yeah. know, we'll wait until it gets cheaper, half price, that kind of thing. Just look for, for ways of saving money that way. Absolutely. Well. And it does. You really can save money that way if you cook yourself. But one of the other things you just you mentioned roast lamb. Can you explain to me why it's not better for our Welsh farmers to have lamb and how it is? kind of net zero or green or good to be getting it from New Zealand, the other side of the world. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. The New Zealand lamb seems to be cheaper. Yes. Somehow. Yes. Um, How? And the Welsh lamb producers were complaining, weren't they, that they wouldn't be able to sell it in Europe somehow. Yeah. But I presume that's not the case because nothing's really changed. I just don't understand why we're not buying our own lamb, right. you know, and we're not buying our own beef, mm. and it's not being produced properly. You know how I feel about yes. these things, you know, humanely reared, humanely. Do you not sorted. think a lot of the blame for a lot of this though is, is to be laid at, the, at the, the door of the supermarkets because they're so massive now, you know, the big the big yeah. ones, and I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I could name all of them, so I'm not going to name any of them. But yeah. you know the ones I mean. Yeah. The ones that can buy in such bulk that they can basically, you know, dictate, for example, to the milk producers exactly how much they're going to buy the milk for. And the but milk, thing, and the milk thing, producers are saying it's not fair, well, we things, can't make a proper living. But the milk producers at the moment have been told that they're making 10p on a pint or whatever they're making. Right. Uh, they've, they've made that profit. But the diesel to produce the milk and to do all mm. of that has gone up much more than 10p per pint. Right. So actually they're still making a loss. Mm. Whatever happens, it's the consumer and the farmer that loses. The supermarkets and, and the kind of big buck guys, they never lose anything. They no. never lose a penny. Their profits never... No, or and they also and they do that thing, don't they? Lost leaders, where they'll sell stuff because Cheaper. they want to uh, to get you into the shop. Yeah. And it might not be the healthiest thing. It no. might not be the, the vegetables. I mean, the vegetables are the cheapest thing you can buy. Yeah. I mean, I think if everybody knew how to make vegetable soup, decent vegetable soup, yeah. and even if you want to put a bit of bacon in it or something, give it a bit of flavour. Yeah. You know, so good and so cheap and easy. So good, so cheap, so easy. Things like um, pulses and and because. Because actually this period of time now is the Lenten fast, you know, and, and Greeks and Orthodox people, oh, yeah, um, they all do a kind of vegan fast at yeah. the moment now. So it's, it's all, you know, 
pulses and and stews and things like that and they're really tasty and really delicious and really cheap mm. i mean really cheap to yeah make. absolutely right yeah i was asked at one point what i was giving up for lent i said parenting <laughs> teenage boys very difficult i can not understand easy. that not easy <laughs> not um easy you want all. to talk about the covid inquiry as well i really do want to talk about the covid inquiry um and i was reading um alison pearson today and she's she always gets it spot on yeah. when it comes to covid she's just got it so right and there are certain questions that must be asked you can't just look at the covid deaths you've mm. got to look at what has happened during covid and the lockdown and what happened throughout and also during the whilst you're talking about the covid inquiry we really do need to look at the public health act mm. because they used that to lock us down now the public health act was out there to isolate infected people mm. not to lock down people that have got absolutely right. nothing wrong with them and it needs to be amended with the only time that we should have our liberty deprived if it's something that it's gone through an emergency um, and it goes into the house and gets debated you can't just use this mm. public health in, uh, uh, act to to lock us up because right. it's it's been abused to meander around yeah because yeah, i mean there was a story i think just at the end of last week about a new study done where they said we think the deaths from covid were much worse than we than we knew but not actual deaths from COVID, but deaths as a result of As a result COVID, of COVID. Which so, is a very different thing. So, so some, some of the great uh, questions that I feel uh, that should be asked about this is, you know, in, uh, in March uh, 22, 2020, a paper by SYB, the Committee Giving Behaviour Advice to the government, said that the perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased among those that um, uh, because it's not hitting hard enough, it's yeah. the emotional meshing. So let's decide to put the fear of God in everyone. Mm. Who decided that was okay to do with well, the mental health that we've got now? I presume who decided it was the that sage was okay? maniacs who are hopefully never to be heard from again. And when Michael Gove came up and said everyone is at risk, mm. why did he lie? Yeah, Good not question. everyone was at risk. No. Why did he lie? These are questions I want. And and then we've got the slides that were given at the time yeah. by all of by by Witty and Valance yeah. that were so disgusting yeah. and so wrong and incorrect. At and all how times. is it possible, by the way, for these characters to just shuffle off the public stage? Yeah having been on it for pretty much every single day of the last two years, and to and suddenly go poof into the into the air, disappear. Why, why are they not being held to account for the damage Well, they will done? be. I think they should be, and I'm certainly going to do that. And, and the whole thing about, you know, I want to know exactly how many deaths were caused because of lockdown. Yeah. Now, I know myself, I know deaths because of lockdown sure. I, I i'm very lucky that i own i know one person that died of covid who was very very sick yeah. and actually it was the comorbidities that mm. made him so weak that he ended up dying yeah. so i'm very lucky in that and i'm not to say that lots of people haven't died of covid and it's been a terrible thing yes. but i know far I know more people that have died because of mm. lockdown mm. absolutely right i also know a lot of people who have got covid who are quite elderly yes and um you know not necessarily particularly well but who were fine as well. Well, my, my father-in-law had um, Omicron uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, he's 82. Right. And, uh, you know, we, we said, do I have to stay? And I said, well, you better just look after yourself yeah. a bit, you know, just take right. it easy. He was completely fine. Right. It, you know, it is not the, the terror that they led us yeah. to believe it, it is. Well, but I mean, we've now gone from a situation where you weren't supposed to stand too near anyone, right? Outside, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Uh, to companies now saying to people, you know what? If you've got COVID, you can come to work. It's okay. Just come in. 
because it's a cold now. Well, it's endemic and it, it has mutated down to the point where it, it is a cold now. I mean, there will still be people who get it mm. and suffer very badly. Yeah. You know, and where they're saying, what about people that are vulnerable? People that are vulnerable have always had to protect themselves. You know, before COVID, they had to protect yeah. themselves. They could get a common cold mm. and it could kill them, right. just like you could get COVID and it could kill you. That's unfortunately what happens when you're vulnerable. Yeah. I had a heated, really heated debate with someone on Friday night at a party. Right. This woman was so belligerent. Mm. You know, what about my sister? She's vulnerable. What are you saying? I said, well, what about my children? Right. You know, what do you think that they should stop living, stop right. going to school, yes. stop going out, stop wear mentally progressing, wear a mask forever for your vulnerable sister? Yeah. Well, I don't agree. No, I don't agree with that. People no. have to. Those that can live should live. And those that are vulnerable, we should have and still should help protect mm. as best we can. Yes. But what are we going to do about all these? And that was the original plan, wasn't it? Protect was. the vulnerable. That's that what was the... how it started. And yeah. then now look where it ended. I keep bringing them up because the Great Barrington Declaration was so fantastic yeah. and it, they were made to be quacks. They were trying to discredit all mm. the doctors were on, that are on there. It was such disgusting behaviour. Yeah. Who was doing that? You know, if you're so busy and you can find all these things, find out who was discrediting these people mm. because it wasn't just kind of people alone. It mm. was great governing bodies yeah. that were doing that. Why were they doing that? Yes, yeah, a good question. And, and we will find the answer for sure. It may take a while, but we will. We're out of time. Again? I know. <laughs> Amazing. But listen, thank you so much for coming in. My uh, always a delight and always a pleasure. Uh, Tony Buxton will be back, of course, next week. Uh, we've got more to do. We've got more of your calls to take. The Donna Harvey's going to be here as well. Nancy Pelosi made a very bizarre speech last night. We're going to hear a bit of that. Uh, she sounds like she may have had a couple of uh, gin and tonics before she started. We shall see. Uh, this is Tall Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the only place where you can get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Of course, we will always uh, bring the news to you first. We will always tell you what is going on. Uh, and of course, you can watch us now as well as listening to us. Go to talkradio.tv uh, and you can watch us on the app. Uh, you can also download the app from the App Store, Talk Radio TV, watch us on Apple, Rakuten, Samsung uh, TV Plus, Roku, YouTube as well uh, and Amazon Fire. Uh, we've been talking all this week to Rob Rinder, of course, our very own uh, Talk Radio Friday Drive Time uh, presenter. Today's in Krakow uh, in Poland. He's been doing sterling work on the border, talking to refugees, giving them uh, some hope for where they might be able to end up, whether they can come to Britain or not, uh, trying to fight for them and trying to fight for their rights to talk to people officially so that they can find out what they can do, when they can do it and where they can actually get to. Rob, a very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, uh, Mike. Uh, yeah, we are now in Krakow, which many people may have visited uh, on a weekend, a beautiful medieval city. You can see it's bustling behind me. You wouldn't know that uh, 120 miles or thereabouts away uh, is the border between peace and war. Mm. And on this cobbled street, as we were looking for the great proud British flag of the consulate authority, well, we couldn't find it. So along with our brilliant fixer, Oksana, she looked through her uh, iPhone and um, it was curious to us. Uh, there are other countries' flags still here. We eventually found a little door uh, with a sign on it and the sign reads that the consulate authority is shut for the pandemic. 
Uh, just to be clear, this is the nearest major city to the border for those fleeing. And anybody getting basic advice or following their common sense, wanting to jump through the hoops to fill out the necessary forms to um, follow up on the promises made by the British people, if they arrived here, uh, everything would be shut. That's extraordinary, Rob, because only yesterday when I was speaking to you, we were sort of joking that uh, the Home Office are obviously busy working from home uh, and not actually doing it. It turns out they actually genuinely are working from home, even in Krakow. Uh, it sounds like you uh, put it in only the way that uh, you can, uh, delicately with a thin hint of uh, <laughs> wry amusement. You are exactly right. It was a surprise to all of us. I have to say, uh, we thought it was a joke mm. and we're concerned about that. We wanted to check on our website to make sure that we were sort of reporting the right information. The concern that we have is that, as you are aware, one of the real practical complaints, problems there is on the border is that there isn't anybody from Britain. Um, they're giving people directions, giving them information. It's a group of volunteers doing the best with the knowledge that they have. And the concern we have are the number of people, and we are certainly aware of at least in a few cases, who have been directed to the first consulate authority uh, they know, which would be here in Krakow, bearing in mind there are free buses to get here, only to discover that, in fact, as you describe, um, people are working from home. Very useful applying for uh, the necessary papers to reach the sanctuary of the UK through Zoom. It is incredible, isn't it? And, I mean, is there anybody who's answerable for this? I mean, is there anybody that you can deduce that you could get in touch with to say, you know, what on earth are you thinking? Well, I mean, there are many people um, on my... Uh, I'm going to put it this way, on my political hit list here. You know, I keep saying there's a tale of two things going on. The DOD, Department of Defence, we talked about this yesterday on Julia's show, and it's important that you've, you know, championed the UK and banged the drum for what the UK did leading up to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, of course, there was a great deal of hardware and um, a, a, an important factor in President Zelensky being proudly able, courageously, to hold off Russian forces has been because in part of that contribution. So we need to speak that up. That's DOD, Foreign Office. But it's amazing that when things need to get here logistically, that department functions. When it comes to the Home Office and perhaps the Foreign Office, those, part, those departments working together don't seem to be able to determine the various whereabouts of their bottoms and their elbows. Mm. Now, I can put it in that way. Yeah. But it is um, pretty scandalous because it's not that difficult. I've had offers this morning from the Ukrainian Medical Association. These are doctors. They also have relationships with lawyers. And what they've said is, look, we will provide volunteers for the British government. It's not going to cost anything. Put a British flag behind us and um, we'll give um, Ukrainians crossing the border, um, fleeing that war, we will give them whatever information required or necessary um, in order for them to fill out the relevant necessary paperwork. Um, just let us do it. Mm. Um, it, it. It's about, this is the thing, and it, it, you can't really get a sense of it. You arrive with your kid, it's mums pretty much only and men over 60, and what you want is somebody in your language to explain, hello, there are hundreds thousands, excuse me, hundreds of thousands in the UK ready to offer you a home. Here's how you apply. This is where you need to go next. Everything is free. The buses here are free, provided by the Polish authorities. There are airlines willing, ready and able to provide free flights. And nearly all of the people who are offering their rooms are not doing it for the money. Mm. Um, 
That's the reality of the situation. Now, tale of two departments, three departments perhaps, but you know, maybe, who knows, in the ensuing days as the potential God-willing possibility for peace emerges, lessons will have to be learned because this is not going to be the only crisis that hits Britain. Mm. And when the UK and when the Home Office and when the Foreign Office makes promises to uh, people, especially the British public make those promises, they need to be able to deliver on them. And standing outside a closed embassy is no way of delivering on that promise. It really is not. And I mean, as far as the numbers go, uh, Rob, obviously you've been there a few days now. Um, is, is the stream still yeah. as strong as it was? Because I think we were told it was up to about two million people that had left beginning sort of Tuesday. So uh, are the numbers still coming across? Right. They are uh, indeed. At the moment, uh, it's difficult to say. Uh, you know, the crossing between UK, excuse me, Ukraine and Poland is a modern first world crossing. It's a train ride. I mean, sure, it stops for a little while as people check passports, but it's very, very difficult to determine the number of people that are crossing foot by train. It really is like a train ride pretty much from, well, it's, it's about London to Manchester. That's to give you the difference mm. between uh, excuse me, Primacy, uh, uh Railway Station and uh, Lviv, um, uh, uh, about uh, a few more hours on to Kiev. So it's a short, it's a short journey, but there's about 1.5 or thereabouts million 1.5 million refugees uh, in this country and they're doing their best to disperse them across Poland but of course that's placing significant challenges on all of their local resources. I haven't met a single Polish person I might add that isn't um, prepared, willing and again I keep using this language able, even happy to house uh, the Ukrainian people. Now it's right to say this part of the world hasn't always necessarily been the most open to um, refugees, to immigrants, certainly. But when it comes to the people from the Ukraine, the Polish people across the board at every range, from every background, from every community we've seen, um, are doing everything they can. And the Ukrainian people that we speak to tell us one thing. Thank you, Britain. So they certainly want to thank Poland. And they are very much praying that they're able to go back. Yes, because it's still looking pretty awful and desperate in an awful lot of parts of, uh, right. of the country, isn't it? It really is. Um, we were talking this morning um, to Oksana, my Strictly Come Dancing partner's um, parents, uh, well, excuse me, her grandparents, her parents have just managed, I think, to, her mum rather, has managed to reach her in America. But uh, her grandparents, one is 95, one is um, 80. He has Parkinson's. They've been pretty much bedbound. The pressures on people like the Red Cross are doing their absolute best. I mean, there's no wheelchair. I was... We went to, finally, we reached them this morning uh, with our team and we got a wheelchair there and various bits and pieces they needed. And they'd come from Kharkiv. And, uh, you know, listening to what they say and how they describe things um, in their language um, in Russian, I have to tell you, it's completely heartbreaking. It was a terrifying um, ordeal. Mm. Uh, and to see um, Oksana's babchka, her grandfather, grandmother, uh, pretty much in bed, wake up and hug us all as we arrive with tears rolling down our face to say look thank you but there really is and everybody was touched by it our fixers are you know extremely strong women that have worked here for a very long time and seen everything and everyone was affected by it because you know looking into that tiny place where they are as refugees less than three weeks ago they were in a safe secure home mm. uh, in ukraine 
But again, they're doing their best, they're indomitable, and they say thank you to Britain for everything that the British people are doing, that are ready to do for them. Um, but they're going to stay where they are in Poland. They had something to say to Vladimir Putin, certainly it's irrepeatable, certainly in daytime. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you that they um, are more than grateful for what everybody has done. And their wish, their prayer is that sooner rather than later, whatever decimation they go back to, they're able to go back to their country. I'm sure that's true. And Rob, uh, it's been great talking to you again. Where are you off to uh, later on? What's your, what's your sort of plan of action? Well, we're leaving here, and this really is, if you like, the completion of the journey, demonstrating you know, what failures there have been. And I need to emphasise that these administrative failures are really examples of how government doesn't just fail people in this country, uh, but to broaden the conversation out, just how um, it's right to say that so many government departments, when it comes to administration, may make promises, but when it comes to fill in the form and actually get the things that you're entitled to, it doesn't need to necessarily be here. It could be tax credits, you name it. And I'm talking about domestic policy too. It's a quagmire. And it shouldn't be when you have a basic entitlement and where the government, and in this case, where the people of Britain have made a promise. So we're following that journey. The completion here is in Krakow. And then me and my incredible producer, Ricky Freelove, who I think has hardly slept for the better part of uh, three days and has just done the most extraordinary work, are going to be heading back to you uh, at Talk Radio, the home of common sense and of... Listen to it here, uh, Great British Values. Super stuff. Rob, thank you very much indeed for everything you've done and uh, fantastic reporting in from, uh, from that part of the world, from the Polish border, from Krakow today, uh, from other parts as well. Uh, Rob's really done a superlative job for us and just showing what it is that is wrong with the way that the civil service runs. I mean, talk to me about working from home. Talk to me about how the Foreign Office didn't have anybody in the Foreign Office when the Afghanistan crisis was going on. Talk to me about why there is nobody working in the embassy in Britain, uh, in the British embassy in Krakow, in Poland, in the midst of a refugee crisis when people need to be given information on how to get out of Poland and into Britain. I mean, it seems extraordinary to me. Who the hell is running the Home Office? Because Priti Patel doesn't seem to be doing a very good job. Anybody got any clues? 0344 499 1000. Ian Collins coming up just after one. He'll be here to tell us what's going on on his show. Jeremy Carl from four. Kevin O'Sullivan from seven. James Well from ten. It's all happening. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.